are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the Grand Junction Sentinel. My name is Linda Chambers. Coffee Talk. Emotions run high at Coffee with the Board amid talk of D-51 school closures by Ryan Biller. The school district's monthly Coffee with the Board meetings can be on the tense side, and amid talk of impending school closures, Saturday's gathering was no different. The Mesa County Valley School District 51 Board of Education has been weighing the possibility of closing Lincoln Orchard Mesa Elementary School. Orchard Avenue Elementary School and East Middle School at a time of declining enrollment. Western Demographics President Shannon Brigham recently recommended that the three locations be closed and the students be relocated to nearby schools. You're messing with teachers' entire livelihood, Sarah Sanders, a parent and community member, said. What's going to happen to all the displaced teachers that this creates? What then? The two school board members present, President Andrea Hates and Vice President Will Jones, tried to assure the upwards of 30 attendees at Tope Elementary that the board would be do everything they could to relocate displaced teachers. Everyone who isn't probationary will have a position somewhere. Even if it isn't in your area of expertise, Hate said, you will be employed next year. That I can assure you. Hates went on to explain that the board has a team ready to help assist displaced teachers relocate to other schools and that she is confident every displaced teacher could get a new position. Hates also said that if something isn't done, that in the future we really will be gambling with people's lives. Bingham's report on district enrollment trends was cited by Hates and Jones throughout Saturday's meeting. According to the report, the district had 459 fewer students enrolled for the fall of 2022 than it did the prior school year, down from 21,328 to 20,869. Forecasting enrollment for the remainder of the decade, Bingham predicted that the district will lose 2,361 students by 2030. Future projections are saying that we will have a drop of at least 1,300 kids based on the number of children alive today, Haight said. I know this is hard and it seems like a drastic measure, but... If we don't do something now, I worry things will get much, much worse in the future. Emotions were high at the meeting, like they have been at regular Board of Education meetings, with many teachers and parents associated with the three schools providing personal anecdotes and testimonies on behalf of their and their kids' schools. When I heard about all this, I felt like my life exploded, said Jamie Pedden, a teacher at Lincoln Orchard Mesa Elementary. I understand that hard decisions need to be made, but I just really hope that the board considers perspectives outside just the demographer. The team of Lincoln Orchard Mesa works so hard for their kids, and you just want to blow all that up? 
Haidt said that a decision needs to be made soon and that it could happen as soon as Thursday or Friday. We do need to make a decision soon, and it needs to happen within a week of the meeting, Haidt said. I don't want to play yo-yo with people's lives. The controversial proposition of a Merrillac Health school-based clinic in the new Grand Junction High School also surfaced at the meeting. Some accused the board of misusing funds, that the clinic was unnecessary, and diverted money needed to keep the schools open. Hates went on to announce a recent lawsuit filed against Merrillac Health and SCL Health. According to Hates, an anonymous tip of a both local and federal lawsuit against the two groups is unfolding and that we as a school board don't want to get wrapped up in, the, in it. We don't have much information to share right now, but our understanding is that there are accusations of wrongful personnel firing and misuse of funds. We have not heard anything about malpractice, Haidt said. It gives the board a cause for concern. We aren't saying Merrillac Health is guilty or isn't guilty. Right now, our legal counsel is assessing the situation. Other crowd members asked Hates and Jones of possible means of preventing closures. Some asked if the money from the marijuana sales could be diverted on behalf of the schools, though Hates explained that those funds are allocated to parks and recreation. Education doesn't get that money. I'm terribly upset about this. I don't really know what to say, said Carol Baker, a retired teacher. Yes. I understand that enrollment is down and that the board is in a tough place, but closing three schools is really, really tough. Schools aren't a business. Schools really are a community and a culture. It's going to be really hard on people, deter people from moving here, and hamper the quality of education in the Valley. Hates concluded the meeting by saying that the only thing constant in life is change and that she hopes we all can rally around our kids, assure them that it'll all be okay, find the silver lining, and make this a more positive thing. Will Jones, who remained relatively quiet throughout the two-hour forum, said he wishes they didn't have to resort to closing schools. I don't want to close any schools. I really don't. It's something that we have to do, though, Jones said. It makes me sad. I lose sleep over it. And there uh, are a couple of pictures. The first one is um, uh, a picture of the board meeting, the board meet, the coffee with the board meeting at Tope Elementary School, and um, it shows Andrea Hates uh, speaking. And the bottom picture shows um, uh, shows a parent. It looks like it's a parent talking at, uh, uh, at the meeting. Both photos are by Scott Crabtree from the Daily Sentinel. My training kicked in and I just reacted. Author reveals ups and downs of being an Air Force pilot in new book by Ryan Biller. When Ken Kim Campbell's aircraft was struck by a surface-to-air missile in Iraq, she knew that ejection wasn't an ideal option. I was at first in shock, but I immediately knew that I'd been hit, Campbell said. My training kicked in, and I just reacted. I knew I needed to do something, or I'd be in a parachute going down into central Baghdad, which wouldn't have been good. 
Campbell, a former fighter pilot for the U.S. Air Force, was providing air support to troops on the ground in Baghdad in 2003. Despite the damage her aircraft, an A-10 Warthog, sustained, Campbell managed to land back at base. It was the best landing I'd ever done, Campbell said. The harrowing endeavor earned Campbell the Distinguished Flying Cross for Heroism Award. Campbell and her family now live in Monument, although before her retirement, she served 24 years in the military. I decided, excuse me, I wanted to be a fighter pilot in fifth grade, Campbell said. It was when I watched the launch of the Space Shuttle Challenger that did it for me. Campbell recalls how exciting it initially was to watch the launch, but how it quickly transgressed into a terrible tragedy. The situation, she said, resonated in a profound way. Campbell was intrigued by the astronauts' heroism and that they died doing something bigger than themselves. Campbell told her parents of her newfound aspiration to become an astronaut, to which her father, a former member of the Air Force himself, suggested she started with the Air Force, as many astronauts got their start as former pilots. My time in the military made me a better person, a better wife, and a better mom. It made me a better leader, Campbell said. I didn't realize how much passion and purpose I'd find. Supporting ground troops became my why. As part of the 1997 class of the Air Force Academy, Campbell made up a small demographic among her peers, as only 16% of her classmates were female at the time. What I learned as a woman in a male-dominated industry was that I had to be credible, prepared and willing to put in the work, Campbell said. I had to prove myself during training. I knew on day one day that I'd be judged on day one, I'm sorry, it says on day one that I'd be judged, that people would be watching me. As a young fighter pilot, Campbell proved herself and earned respect from her peers. She was assigned to the call sign KC, standing for Killer Chick. Kim Casey Campbell's training as an A-10 pilot started in 2001. Her training persisted through the terrorist attacks of September 11th, at which time, at which point, Campbell knew that her role about was about to change dramatically. She joined the combat unit shortly after the World Trade Center was attacked by Al Qaeda. In 2002, Campbell was flying over Afghanistan as a wingman providing support to troops on the ground. Then, in 2003, Campbell was in Iraq. We all wanted to go and fight to make a difference, to be a part of it, Campbell said. But I don't think we knew exactly what we were getting into. I see young people that want to apply their training in the field. But since we aren't at war, they don't get to. They may not fully realize that war is a terrible thing being away from your family, losing friends, and everything else that comes with war changes your perception. But when being struck from below by a missile, Campbell remembers the fear she felt. It was frightening. Of course it was frightening, Campbell said. We all face fear, and it's okay to have these fears, but you still have to step up and take action. Taking action is precisely what Campbell did. Being brave, Campbell said, is often being afraid simultaneously, something that her upcoming book, Flying in the Face of Fear, revolves around. 
The book comes out March 8th. Campbell describes the writing process as a long one, but after three years, Flying in the Face of Fear is finally ready for release. I learned so much from people willing to be vulnerable, Campbell said. The book is a way of sharing my stories. It has 12 chapters about leading with courage and what exactly that means. Each chapter is story-based and predominantly stories from my time in the military. Campbell retired from the Air Force in August 2021. She described retirement as an adjustment because being a pilot had been something I'd done for so long. Campbell has since been spending her time working as a keynote speaker and preparing her new book. A colleague of mine at the Air Force Academy was the one who encouraged me to write a book and to tell my stories. It gave me the opportunity to reflect on the past 24 years, Campbell said. The book's target audience is for leaders of teams, big or small. My friend read it and said that she feels like, as a mom, she's the leader of her family and that's how the book resonated with her. Campbell said, anyone who is a leader, whether they're a CEO of a large company or simply a parent in a family, is who this book is intended for. Having missiles launched in her direction while flying over war-torn Iraq in 2003 invoked fear, though that fear, Campbell said, prompted internal bravery, which is a focal point of the book. I was hesitant about using fear in the title because fear is associated with weakness and vulnerability, Campbell said. Admitting I was afraid at times and being vulnerable made me stronger. It made me a better leader. You can be brave and afraid at the same time. And there is a photo of Kim Campbell, uh, a retired Air Force fighter pilot, uh, as she stands under or with, within an airplane, uh, beside an airplane, an Air Force airplane. And then there is a, a photo of her in her dress uniform. And the photos, it sounds like the photos are by Kim Campbell. UMass issues warning about TikTok binge by the Associated Press, Amherst, Massachusetts. The University of Massachusetts is warning about a TikTok drinking trend after 28 ambulances were summoned to off-campus parties. Students were observed Saturday carrying jugs with a mixture of alcohol, electrolytes, flavoring, and water dubbed Blackout Rage Gallons, or Borgs, B-O-R-G-S, in a binge-drinking trend gaining traction on TikTok, officials said. There were so many calls for ambulances for student alcohol intoxication that neighboring agencies stepped in to help, officials said. The Amherst Fire Department said none of the cases were life-threatening. UMass police reported two arrests for underage drinking. UMass officials said this is the first time the university has observed widespread use of Borgs at off-campus parties. In a statement, the university said the weekend's events will be assessed and steps taken to improve alcohol education. Incoming students already learn about psychological and medical risks of binge drinking. The festivities are known among UMass students as the Blarney Blowout an annual unsanctioned event related to St. Patrick's Day. Guitar Center Coming to Mall by Nathan Deal. 
Mesa Mall has been has seen a revitalization in recent years, welcoming stores such as Dillard's, Dick's Sporting Goods, and Home Goods. That resurgence will continue this month when Guitar Center opens its seventh Colorado location in an 11,000 square foot space nestled between Target and Home Goods. Mesa Mall General Manager Jay Greenberg said the store is scheduled to open in mid-March and an opening date should be decided upon within the next week. For Greenberg, welcoming the nation's leading musical instruments company was a common-sense next step in Mesa Mall's growing success. A trend subversive of the fading relevance many malls are facing across the United States. We are extremely excited to be able to bring in a store and retailer like Guitar Center as it's the largest company of its kind in the United States with 294 locations, Greenberg said. Mesa Mall is extremely excited to welcome them not only to the mall, but they will be able to provide a great service to the community that has been underserved in the Grand Valley. The Grand Junction located is the first guitar center in Colorado to be located west of the Front Range. The other stores are in Denver, Colorado Springs, Inglewood, Arvada, Fort Collins, and Pueblo. We were well aware of the rich history of musicianship in the area, but we noticed that having a retail presence in Grand Junction would make it easier for musicians not having to drive hours to a neighboring community to experience our exclusive gear and service offerings, said Guitar Center Executive Vice President of Store Operations Wayne Colwell. We are confident that the musicians in the area will be extremely happy to spend time getting hands-on with the extensive selection of gear available there. Guitar Center carries top brands of instruments such as Fender, Taylor, Shure, Zildjian, Pioneer, DJ, Gibson, uh, Alessis, DW, Yamaha, and more. The store also sells professional recording equipment such as mixers, software, and microphones, as well as live show gear such as PA systems and monitors, loudspeakers, subwoofers, and headphones. In addition to becoming a new hub for musicians on the Western Slope to buy instruments, Guitar Center will also provide lessons for many instruments with instructors teaching guitar, bass, piano, drums, and more. The store will also provide repairs, maintenance, and modification services, as well as instrument retail services. And there is a picture of the location at the Mesa Mall later this month. And the picture is by Scott Grabtree, the Daily Sentinel. University of Colorado hires Western Slope Program Manager. Christian Reese aims to increase university's outreach by Sentinel staff. The University of Colorado on Friday announced that Christian Reese has been selected as the school's regional program manager on the Western Slope to solidify its commitment to partnerships, programs, and people in the region. Reese, a Grand Junction resident, recently served as Club 20's executive director for eight years before stepping down in February to accept her position with the University of Colorado. Before that, she served as a field representative for U.S. Representative Scott Tipton, worked for Habitat for Humanity Mesa County, 
and served on the St. Mary's Medical Center Board of Directors as well as the City of Grand Junction Planning Commission. She'll begin her duties with the University of Colorado on March 14th. CU has substantial ties on the Western Slope, including the CU Boulder Engineering Partnership with Colorado Mesa University and Western Colorado University. And we can build on those and other initiatives to ensure that the university continues to meet its mission of serving all of Colorado, Reese said in a press release from the university. CU has a lot to offer, just as communities across western Colorado have a lot to offer the university. Reese's hiring is part of the University of Colorado's efforts to increase its statewide outreach and engagement. Reese will cover a region that encompasses 14 counties across the western slope from Moffat to Montrose to Gunnison to Summit to Grand. We've seen through our outreach tours that while people around Colorado have a deep well of good feeling about CU, they are also looking to learn more about the educational opportunities on our four campuses and for ways we can help them address community issues, said University of Colorado Vice President for Outreach and Engagement, Tony Salazar. Outreach and engagement are priorities for the Board of Regents and for me, so I am thrilled Christian will be on ongoing staff presence in communities and representing the University of Colorado, added University of Colorado President Todd Salomon. She has deep ties and important connections regionally, which will help CU advance its mission to serve the state. Reese earned her bachelor's degree in biology from Colorado Mesa University before receiving her master's degree in business administration from Auburn University. She was also a transatlantic fellow in the German Marshall Memorial Fellow Program and was also a fellow in the Colorado Governor's Fellowship. And there is a photo of Christian Reese. Grammy winner booked for Palisade. Band lineup announced for Bluegrass and Roots Festival by Ann Wright. Bluegrass versions of the Grateful Dead songs and a fiddle player with a Grammy are coming to the 2023 Palisade Bluegrass and Roots Festival. The music lineup was announced last week for the festival set for June 9th through 11th at Riverbend Park in Palisade. Early bird festival passes and camp camping options will be on sale through May 31st at, at palisademusic.com. The festival also is seeking volunteers. One four-hour volunteer shift will earn you a t-shirt and a one-day ticket to the festival. Volunteer longer and a three-day pass could be yours. Go to palisademusic.com slash contact slash for information. Here is the festival's music lineup and gate times. Friday, June 9th, gates open at noon, 3 p.m. To be determined, 5 p.m. Pick up Pick and Howl. 7 p.m. Rapid Grass, 9 p.m. Big Richard, Saturday, June 10th. Gates open at 9 a.m. 11 a.m. Lizzie, number one. P at Lizzie, no. 1 p.m. To be determined. 3 p.m. Armchair Boogie. 6 p.m. Fireside Collection. 8.30 p.m. Keller Williams Grateful Grass featuring the Hillbound Hillbenders. Note, this band has your bluegrass-style Grateful Dead favorites. 
Sunday, June 11th. Gates open at 9 a.m. 11 a.m. Stillhouse Junkies. 1 p.m. Goodnight Texas. 3.30 p.m. Michael Cleveland and Flamekeeper. Note, this fiddle player has a Grammy. 6 p.m. The Lone Below. Keller Williams' Grateful Grass featuring the Hillbenders will headline the June 10th lineup at 2023 Palisade Bluegrass and Roots Festival. It's a picture of uh, Keller Williams. And the, um, uh, special, the photo is by Phil Clarkin, special to the Daily Sentinel. Arrest made in Sunday shooting. A 30-year-old man is in custody after being arrested for a homicide in the 800 block at 26 Road in the early morning hours of Sunday. Mesa County Sheriff's deputies responded to the scene about 6.15 a.m. after report of gunshots in the area. Upon arrival, a deceased male was found lying in the street with a fatal gunshot wound. A suspect vehicle was seen leaving the area at a high rate of speed, and a short pursuit occurred. The suspect vehicle slammed on the brakes, causing a crash with a Grand Junction Police Department patrol vehicle. The suspect fled on foot, but was soon located, hiding in a storage area at a home on Blevins. Minor injuries were reported as a result of the crash. Roads in the area were closed for a short time during the investigation and having a possible active shooter in the area. The name of the suspect has not been released. This article is by the Sentinel staff. 2023, this week in the legislature. Denver. A bill that would allow Delta County elected officials to receive an 8.3% pay raise cleared the Colorado House and is to be heard in the Senate Local Government and Housing Committee this week. Since the measure was introduced, it only included a handful of counties. Now is included Eagle, Oray, and Pitkin counties, among others, giving them a 20.4%. 17.7% and 9.1% pay increase respectively. Today, the House, excuse me, <clears throat> the House State Civic, Military and Veterans Affairs Committee is to hear HB 1219, a measure that would require a 3-day waiting period before someone can take possession of a purchased firearm. Tuesday, the House Judiciary Committee is to debate HB 1169, a measure that would prohibit law enforcement from arresting a person for low-level petty offenses. Wednesday, the House Judiciary Committee is to discuss HB 1206, a measure that would require county sheriffs to have at least a bachelor's degree and require sheriffs and district attorneys to petition onto the ballot rather than using their party's caucus system. It also would prohibit employees in sheriff's offices for, from participating in certain political activities. Thursday, the Senate Agriculture and Natural Resources Committee is to view HB 
1011, a measure that would allow farmers and ranchers to repair their own agricultural equipment despite any requirements from the companies they purchased them from to use their own repair employees to do the work. Next week, the House Judiciary Committee is to hear three measures dealing with how judges are disciplined. All floor action and committees can be watched or heard on the Colorado Legislature's website at lege.colorado.gov. This article is by Charles Ashby. Disability rights activist Judy Human dies by the Associated Press. Judy Human, a renowned activist who helped secure legislation protecting the rights of disabled people, has died at age 75. News of her death Saturday in Washington, D.C. was posted on her website and confirmed by her younger brother, Rick Human. He said she had heart issues that may have been the result of something known as post-polio syndrome related to a childhood infection that was so severe that she spent several months in an iron lung and lost her ability to walk at age two. She, re- she spent the rest of her life fighting, first to get access for herself and then for others, her brother recalled. It wasn't about glory for my sister or anything like that at all. It was always about how could she make things better for other people, he said, adding that the family drew solace from the tributes that poured in on Twitter from dignitaries and past presidents like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. Human has been called the mother of the disability rights movement for her longtime advocacy on behalf of disabled people through protests and legal action. She lobbied for legislation that eventually led to the Federal Americans with Disabilities Act, Individuals with the Disabilities Education Act, and the Rehabilitation Act. The rest of the articles today will be from the plus section of the Daily Sentinel. Voting rights. In Selma, Biden says right to vote remains under assault. By Amar Madani and Kim Chandler. Associated Press, Selma, Alabama. President Joe Biden used the searing memories of Selma's bloody Sunday to recommit to a cornerstone of democracy, lionizing a seminal moment from the civil rights movement at a time when he has been unable to push enhanced voting protections through Congress and a conservative Supreme Court has undermined a landmark voting law. Selma is reckoning the right to vote, To have your vote counted is the threshold of democracy and liberty. With it, anything's possible, Biden told a crowd of several thousand people seated on one side of the historic Edmund Pettus Bridge, named for a reputed Ku Klux Klan leader. This fundamental right remains under assault. The conservative Supreme Court has gutted the Voting Rights Act over the years. Since the 2020 election, a wave of states and dozens and dozens of anti-voting laws fueled by the big lie and the election deniers now elected to office, he said. As a candidate in 2020, Biden promised to pursue sweeping legislation to bolster protection of voting rights. Two years ago, his 2021 legislation, named after civil rights leader John Lewis, 
the late Georgia congressman, included provisions to restrict partisan gerrymandering of congressional districts, strike down hurdles to voting, and bring transparency to a campaign finance system that allows wealthy donors to bankroll political causes anonymously. It passed the then Democratic-controlled House, but it failed to draw the 60 votes needed to advance in the Senate under, con- under control by Biden's party. With Republicans now running of the House, passage of such legislation is highly unlikely. We know we must get the votes in Congress, Biden said, but there seems no viable path right now. The visit to Selma was a chance for Biden to speak directly to the current generation of civil rights activists. Many feel let down because of the lack of progress on voting rights, and they are eager to see his administration keep the issue in the spotlight. Few moments have had as lasting importance to the civil rights movement as what happened on March 7, 1965, in Selma and in the weeks that followed. Some 600 peaceful demonstrators led by Lewis and fellow activist Hosea Williams had gathered that day, just weeks after the fatal shooting of a young black man, Jimmy Lee Jackson, by an Alabama trooper. Lewis and the others were brutally beaten by Alabama troopers and sheriff's deputies as they tried to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge at the start of what was supposed to be a 54-mile walk to the state capitol in Montgomery as part of a larger effort to register black voters in the South. On the bridge, blood was given to help redeem the soul of America, Biden said. The images of the police violence sparked outrage across the country. Days later, civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. led what became known as the Turnaround Tuesday March, in which marchers approached a wall of police at the bridge and prayed before turning back. President Lyndon B. Johnson introduced the Voting Rights Act of 1965 eight days after Bloody Sunday, calling Selma one of those rare moments in American history where history and fate meet at a single time. On March 21st, King began a third march under federal protection that grew for thou- by thousands by the time they arrived at the state capitol. Five months later, Johnson signed the bill into law. This year's commemoration came as the historic city of roughly 18,000 was still digging out from the aftermath of a January EF-2 tornado that destroyed or damaged thousands of properties in and around Selma. The scars of that storm were still evident Sunday. Blocks from the stage where Biden spoke, houses sat crumbled or without roofs. Orange spray paint marked buildings beyond salvage with instructions to tear down. We remain Selma strong, Mayor James Perkins said, adding that we will build back better. He thanked Biden for approving a disaster declaration that helped the small city with the cost of debris cleanup and removal. Before Biden's visit, the Reverend William Barber II, a co-chair of Poor People's Campaign, and six other activists wrote Biden and members of Congress to express their frustration with the lack of progress on voting rights legislation. They urged Washington politicians visiting Selma not to sully the memories of Lewis and Williams and other civil rights activists with empty platitudes. We're saying to President Biden, let's frame this to America as a moral issue, 
and let's show how it affects everybody, Barbara said in an interview. Among those sharing the stage with Biden before the march across the bridge were Barber, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, Martin Luther King III, and the Reverend Al Sharpton. On the bridge crossing, marchers sang, This little light of mine, and we shall overcome. And following tradition, once they reached the point where Lewis and others were told in 1958 that they were on an unlawful march, they stopped and prayed. Water bottles were passed out to some who had gathered to hear Biden, and at least one person was taken away on a stretcher because of the upper 70s heat. Some had waited hours in the sun before relief came from shadows cast from nearby building. Dolores Gresham, 65, a retired health care worker from Birmingham, arrived four hours early, grabbing a front row spot so her grandchildren could hear the president and see the commemoration. I want them to know what happened here. She said in in his remarks, Biden said everyone should know the truth of Selma. And the president took a veiled dig at a high-profile Republican, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, when he said, we should learn everything, the good, the bad, the truth, who we are as a nation. DeSantis' administration has blocked a new advanced placement course on African-American studies from being taught in high schools saying it violates state law and is historically inaccurate. Last year, he signed legislation that restricts certain race-based conversations and analysis in schools and businesses. More recently, his budget office called on state colleges to submit spending information on programs related to diversity, equity, and inclusion in critical race theory. Two years ago, on the anniversary, Biden issued an executive order directing federal agencies to expand access to voter registration, called on the heads of agencies to come up with plans to give federal employees time off to vote or volunteer as nonpartisan poll workers, and more. But many federal agencies are lagging in meeting the voting registration provision of Biden's order according to a report published Thursday by the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Biden re-election bid faces resistance from some Democrats. By Steve Peoples, national political writer, Laconia, New Hampshire. Steve Shirtliff was at Joe Biden's side in 2019 when he filed papers in the New Hampshire State House to run for president. He repeatedly trekked across the state with Biden to court primary voters. And when Biden ultimately won the presidency, it was Shirtliff, then the Democratic State House Speaker, who proudly sealed the envelope that carried New Hampshire's four electoral votes, including his own name, to the U.S. Senate. But on the eve of a new election season, Shirtliff, like a majority of Democrats across the country, feels that one term is enough. In my heart of hearts, no, Shirtless said when asked if he wants Biden to run again. I think a lot of people just don't want to say it. Democrats say, Democrats across New Hampshire are upset with the Democratic president for trying to end the state's status as home to the first in the nation presidential primary. But their concerns about Biden run much deeper. 
in line with the majority of Democratic voters nationwide who question the 80-year-old president's plans to soon launch his re-election campaign. Just 37% of Democrats nationwide want the president to seek a second term, according to a poll released last month by the Associated Press NORC Center for Public Affairs Research. That was down from 52% in the weeks before last year's midterm elections. Many worry about Biden's age. Others, like Shirtleff, are upset about the administration's messy withdrawal from Afghanistan. And the party's progressive wing has never been enthusiastic about Biden, who is perceived as a moderate, despite his lengthy list of achievements. The White House cast Biden's perceived weakness within his own party as an exaggerated narrative that he has repeatedly proven wrong. We're aware of pundits' attitude toward President Biden is unchanged from before he earned the nomination faster than anyone since 2004, won the most votes in American history, built the strongest legislative record in generations, and led the best midterm outcome for a new Democratic president in 60 years. Biden spokesman Andrew Bates said, Based on comparing the accuracy of our predictions versus theirs, we are happy for this dynamic to continue. Still, there's a risk of disconnect between rank-and-file Democrats and the party's establishment. While voters are signaling unease about the prospect of another Biden campaign, Democratic governors, senators, and congressional representatives are virtually unanimous in supporting Biden's re-election. One exception may be New Hampshire, a small swing state whose electoral votes could be critical in in a tight general election. The state has challenged Biden before. Voters here served Biden an embarrassing fifth-place finish in the 2020 Democratic primary. New Hampshire polls were still open when he decamped to South Carolina, where his presidential ambitions were revived by a decisive win. That state is now Biden's pick to lead the 2024 presidential primary calendar. Interviews with angry New Hampshire Democrats across state government and local Democratic committees suggest there is some appetite for a serious primary challenger in 2024, but top-tier prospects don't seem to be interested. So far, only Democratic activist and author Marianne Williamson has entered the 2024 primary field. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the son of the late New York senator and known for rallying against vaccines, met with New Hampshire voters on Friday. He's also leaning toward a bid. But the likes of Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, Biden's fiercest primary challenger in 2020, has vowed to back the president in 2024. So has Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, whose appearance at last year's New Hampshire Democratic Convention still comes up in conversation. California Representative Roe Khanna, a progressive favorite, has also said he would not challenge Biden, although he has been a vocal advocate for New Hampshire's place atop the primary calendar. In an interview, Connor said it was political malpractice for the Democratic National Committee under Biden's direction to threaten New Hampshire's status. New Hampshire is a state where retail politics still matter and where voters have an independence that can't be controlled by the party establishment in D.C., Connor said. The primary shakeup could cost us four electoral votes and hurt our chances to win the 2024 election. 
Meanwhile, Biden's allies privately believe the primary dispute will be long forgotten by the time voters cast ballots in November 2024, especially with former President Donald Trump or one of his Republican acolytes on the ballot. Biden supporters also note that some of the nation's most popular two-term presidents confronted opposition from within their own parties ahead of their re-election. President Ronald Reagan faced grumbling from dissatisfied Republicans leading up to the 1984 contest, which turned out to be the most lopsided general election victory in U.S. history. Democrats openly encouraged a primary challenge against President Bill Clinton after the disastrous 1994 midterms. He went on to a commanding re-election win in 1996. And President Barack Obama's campaign worried about losing support from his political base, especially black voters, before he crushed victory in 2012. We had a lot of work to do, but the fundamentalists were there, says Stephanie Cutter, who helped manage Obama's 2012 re-election. Obama's outlook changed as his team worked to remind voters what they liked best about him compared to a Republican opponent. Elections are about two people. Cutter said. Once Republicans start hitting the campaign trail and that craziness begins, the contrast between that crazy train and Joe Biden's steady leadership and even hand-fixing some of the nation's biggest problems become clear as day. Biden has presided over significant accomplishments that could boost a re-election campaign. He signed into law a sweeping pandemic relief bill, a massive infrastructure package, the first new federal gun safety law in decades, and a comprehensive health and environmental plan that allowed Medicare to lower prescription drug prices and dedicated billions of dollars to combating climate change. Job growth and unemployment have also improved during his administration. But he is grappling with acute acute challenges related to inflation, illegal immigration, crime, and foreign affairs. North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper, a Democrat, attributed Biden's political challenges to Democratic leaders who haven't done enough to promote his accomplishments. The real disconnect right now is communication, Cooper said in an interview. President Biden has accomplished in two years what many presidents would only hope to do in eight. His success has meant real wins for working families. People are going to begin to see real improvement in their lives. It's our job to make sure that they know it was President Biden who had got it done. Democrats came together once before in 2020 to ask him to do a job, and he accomplished it. He beat President Trump, Cooper said, and now he's going to do it again. Despite such optimism, Democrats across New Hampshire believe it will be difficult for Biden to match his 2020 victory of seven percentage points in the state in 2024. Former Governor John Lynch, a Democrat, declined to say whether he wanted Biden to seek re-election when asked directly. <clears throat> Excuse me. Biden's push to change the primary calendar, Lynch said, has created such anti-Biden furor that it puts New Hampshire's four electoral votes at risk in the 2024 general election. He was quick to note that four electoral votes would have tipped the 2000 presidential election in Al Gore's favor. It could cost Democrats the presidency, Lynch said. Republicans won't let voters forget 
they'll hammer the Democrats on this. Indeed, New Hampshire's current governor, Republican Chris Sununu, called the primary calendar shift a horrible miscalculation for Biden that exposes him to a legitimate primary challenge. He's made it harder to win in November 24 if he's the nominee, Sununu said in an interview. But because of what he did here, he very well may not be the nominee. The Democratic concerns were easy to see inside the monthly meeting of Laconia Democrats on the shores of Lake Winnipesaukee late last week, where just a half dozen people gathered to discuss party business. Most of the participants, especially older ones, said they favored Biden's re-election, even if they weren't passionate about it. Lois Kesson, a 73-year-old Laconia resident, has been volunteering for Biden in New Hampshire since Obama first tapped him as his running mate. She has a picture of herself and Biden hanging in her hallway. I am very happy with Joe Biden, she said, acknowledging that some Democrats are worried about his age. A concern, she said, was offensive. Perhaps there's somebody as brilliant as he and as compassionate and as knowledgeable out there. But until that person shows up, I'm happy with Joe Biden. The Laconia Committee chairman, 43-year-old Eric Hoffman, was less enthusiastic. The party kind of lined up because he was the nominee, but he obviously wasn't our first four choices, Hoffman said, referring to Biden's finish in the 2020 primary. People would prefer to see a change. But like many Democrats, he said he would vote for Biden in the 2024 general election to ensure Republicans don't retake the White House. Just don't expect him to be excited about it. I, I wasn't a big fan of his, but I've been pretty impressed with his abilities and the things he's gotten accomplished, Hoffman said. So it's not the worst thing in the world. And there is a picture of Eric Hoffman. Uh, the chairman of the Laconia Democratic Committee, listening during the monthly meeting of the Laconia, New Hampshire Democratic Committee on Thursday, March 2nd, 2023, in Laconia, New Hampshire. And the other picture is former Democratic New Hampshire House Speaker Steve Shirtleff listening to then-Democratic Vice Presidential Candidate Senator Tim Kaine, Democrat from Virginia, uh, during a campaign stop August 12th, 2016, in Concord, New Hampshire. And these photos are by the Associated Press. Mission to Help Miami Faith Community Strains to Help New Exiles and Migrants by Giovanna Del Orto. Associated Press, Hialeah, Florida. A few days after selling all she had to flee Cuba with her three children on a crowded boat, Danelis Damaya Tamayo raised her hand in praise and sang the rousing opening hymn at Sunday worship in this Miami suburb. The only thing that gave me strength is the Lord. I'm not going to lose my faith, whatever I might go through, she said. The family has been sleeping in Iglesia Rescate's improvised shelter since the promises of help made, her, made by her contact in the United States turned out to be all lies. In the past 18 months, an estimated 250,000 migrants and asylum seekers like Tamaya have arrived in the Miami area after being granted only precarious legal status that often doesn't include permission to work, which is essential to building new lives in the U.S. 
This influx is maxing out the migrant social safety net in Miami's faith communities, long accustomed to integrating those escaping political persecution, a lack of freedoms, and a dearth of basic necessities. Cubans were the first to arrive during the island's communist revolution 60 years ago, and they're still fleeing here alongside Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans. The Lord says to welcome the stranger. It's the saddest thing, the quality of people, the quantity of people who come, and we can't help them, said the Reverend David Mondway, Iglesia Rescates pastor. Miami's faith leaders and their congregations remain steadfast in their mission to help settle new migrants, but they're sound, sounding the alarm that the need is growing unmanageable. We can get a call on a Saturday that 30 migrants were dropped off and two hours later, all have been picked up, said Peter Routsis Arroyo, the CEO of Catholic Charities in Miami. But the challenge is at what point you reach saturation. The number of arrivals by sea directly to Florida and from those heading here from the U.S.-Mexico border surged earlier this winter. For most newcomers, the best hope to settle in the U.S. is to win asylum, but immigration courts are so backlogged migrants can be in limbo for years, ineligible to get a job legally. Advocates say they, that makes them vulnerable to criminals, puts an impossible financial burden on existing migrant communities that try to help, and slows down integration into U.S. society. The, this is completely irrational that they're not giving out work permits, said Miami Archbishop Thomas Winsky, whose Catholic archdiocese has long helped welcome migrants. Because of that, the government can make a situation that's not too bad yet become worse. Many migrants are already homeless due to soaring rent and motel rates. Every day, people knock on the doors of our parishers, uh, saying they have no place to sleep, said the Reverend Marcos Samariba, rector at St. Agatha Catholic Church on Miami's outskirts. In addition to providing food, clothes, and some housing relief, churches are helping educate migrants about their legal options. St. Michael, the Archangelo, the Archangel Catholic Church, put together a migrant a migration forum with Catholic Legal Services in mid-February about a new humanitarian parole program that allows 30,000 Cubans, Haitians, Nicaraguans, and Venezuelans into the U.S. each month if they have a sponsor who assumes financial responsibility for them for two years. Parishioner Dalia Marrero attended to learn about sponsoring an uncle in Nicaragua where many are fleeing President Daniel Ortega's, Ortega's crackdown on opponents. I don't want to fall, fail him or U.S. law, she said, worried about how long she'd be required to support her relative. Miami's established diaspora communities know all too well the hardships that migrating entails and that motivates many to help. But there also is mistrust among some old-timers who remain active in opposition to autocratic regimes like Cuba's and view some new arrivals' politics with suspicion, said Jorge Duaney, a director of the Cuban Research Institute at Florida International University. That underscores the potentially crucial role for faith leaders to preach forgiveness and build a sense of shared experience. That's it. To unite, said the Reverend Elvis Gonzalez, pastor at St. Michael the Archangel, a historically Cuban church that welcomes faithful from across Central America. They have seen the church as the only institution that can give some help. 
A few miles south on the seashore stands La Ermita, a shrine dedicated to Our Lady of Charity that's long been a beacon for Cuban exiles. Migrants from all over Latin America come to bring sunflowers to the Virgin, to cry in gratitude for having made it, and to ask for help with food and clothing, said Sister Consuela Gomez. Jesus also was a migrant, said Gomez, who helps many newcomers find jobs and decent housing, often with the aid of Diaspora members. We try to help so that they can get ahead on their own. Ask about the new uh, influx of new arrivals. Sardinias said it would be selfish to argue anything but that all who can come, let them come. The ideal would be that freedom existed in Cuba, Figuero added. Thank you for joining us for the Grand Junction Sentinel. My name is Linda Chambers. AINC presents your Low Vision Resource of the Day. Today we want to highlight the Xavier Society for the Blind. This organization is similar to AINC, but instead of newspapers and magazines, provides recorded religious material in Braille and audio. Learn more by visiting www.xavirsocietyforthe. B-L-I-N-D dot org, calling 212-473-7800 or emailing info at X-A-V-I-E-R-S-O-C-I-E-T-Y-F-O-R-T-H-E-B-L-I-N-D dot org. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado.